call to worship is Psalm 52. This is the result of one of David's run-ins with Doeg the Edomite who had gone to Saul and told him that David had gone to the house of Ahimelech. God calls us to worship. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will approach you from the land of the living. The righteous will see in fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Let's turn to hymn number 382 and we'll sing Gina's song. 382 in your hymnal. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11. As we continue in the God's Garden series from the book of Genesis, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen has not been made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Steve, can you lead us in prayer? The main point I have emphasized over the last few weeks of study in Genesis 2 and 3 is that the story of Adam and Eve in the garden is at the center of our Bible and all of our Christian faith. Adam and Eve in the garden and the story of the garden is where the principles of creation, of grace, of faith, of obedience, and of judgment are first presented to us right here in the garden at the very beginning of our Bible. And the rest of the Bible is really an exposition or expansion on the theme of the garden that we see at the very beginning with Genesis 2 and chapter 3. We saw that God made Adam by grace, to live by faith in God's Word. And that was the point of God's command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was to rely on God's Word and live by faith in God that God would take care of him in his own terms. And God poured out grace on Adam from the very beginning. He made him by grace. Adam had nothing that he could do before he was made to have some kind of a claim for God to make him and make him as a human being 
in God's image. And then we saw that God surrounded Adam with a beautiful garden with life-giving rivers that ran the outside edges and watered the the garden. God provided animals for Adam to name and in the process, Adam realized that there was no one suitable for him to be a a helper or a helpmeet for him. And so God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam and made the woman from his side. Again, grace. Everything that Adam needed in the garden, God was providing by sheer grace. And of course, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. And yet, as the story goes, the man and the woman, like newborn babies or young children, were naive. Though they were innocent in the garden, they were not experienced and were vulnerable to the craftiness of the serpent. And the serpent came in to tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God's command. Now, when we looked at the temptation, we saw that there's, there's a connection in the temptation in the garden to preeminently to the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. In the garden, we have Adam and Eve surrounded by food. And they were, given to, they were given every tree of the garden, except for one, to eat from. And so they were not hungry. And yet the temptation was, for the serpent asked them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the parallel, of course, is with Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the serpent, by the devil himself. And Jesus was hungry. And that temptation was also over food because the devil tempted Christ to make bread and eat of it instead of listening to his father. And his response was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What Adam was supposed to learn in the garden. So we see all these themes being introduced to us in the garden. We see also that the gospel is in the garden. Genesis 2 and 3 are both are both chapters filled with prophecy, not only history, but also prophecy of things to come in the gospel. In fact, we find the gospel in Genesis 3 with the first promise of a coming Redeemer. We are told that God would put enmity or hatred between the, the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, and the serpent would strike the heel of the woman's seed, and the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And so Eve became the mother of all the living. And when you think of that phrase, all the living, you should think of spiritual life here because Eve is prophetic of the church, just like Adam is prophetic of Jesus Christ, the last Adam. So so Eve becomes the mother of all living. And we see how this great divide happens in Genesis 3 with the curse after the fall. And we have now two lines that are going to be playing their role throughout the rest of covenant history. We have the line of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, who would be at war against the woman and against her offspring, the the living. And we'll see how that plays out right away in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, because what we really have with Cain and Abel is the branching off of these two different lines, these two different offsprings. One was the offspring of the serpent, one was the offspring of the devil, and the other was the offspring of the woman. And we'll see how that works out in Genesis chapter 4. So all these things are prophetic, and we even saw how the idea of God making woman from the man, from Adam, is prophetic of of Jesus Christ because we also have the church being made from the side of Jesus Christ through the blood and the water that he was pierced from on the cross. So all these things are playing on themes, introducing themes of grace, introducing themes of living by faith in God's word, and then our prophetic also of the gospel to come preeminently in Genesis chapter 3.
So let's go on in chapter 4 now with the story of Cain and Abel. And what I want to do today is go look, just look at, now that we've looked at that story in depth of the garden in the last five, five weeks or so, I'd like to just look through the next few chapters of Genesis briefly at various points and we'll see echoes of the garden. Things that are coming in like an echo of what takes place in the garden with the stories that follow immediately in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So we have two offerings here being offered, one by Cain and one by Abel. And some have actually said that this, this was unacceptable offering by Cain because it was, it was not a blood sacrifice like Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice from his flocks and herds. I don't think that's actually correct, though, because we see in the law of Moses that grain offerings were part of the law as well. So grain offerings are just as acceptable in the law of God as were these blood offerings through the, from the uh, flocks and herds. What really makes the difference between Abel and, and Cain's offering, we are told in Hebrews 11, was that Abel offered his offering in faith. He offered with a, with a pure heart to please God, whereas Cain did not offer for the same reasons. He offered probably more for a self-satisfaction. He offered more to this idea of working his way into God's debt. And Abel did not offer his offering like that. And that really is what makes, makes these two offerings different. Now let's continue in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door. Now there's a connection here back to the garden, and that connection is the curse on the serpent. Remember what the, what the curse on the, on the serpent was. He was going to crawl on his belly the rest of his life and eat dust. And that was God's pronouncement of judgment on the serpent. Now, God's warning to Cain is to watch out for sin which is crouching at the door, at his door. The moment he became angry with his brother, sin was there. Imagine a snake coiled up on the doorstep. The snake's there, it's crouching. That's the idea of being low like a snake, ready to strike the heel of Cain as he goes from his anger. But there are some other interesting things here. If you compare God's word to Cain with what God had told Adam in the garden. God told Adam a very simple command in the garden. Do not eat of that one tree. Very easy to understand, not confusing, very cut and dried. But notice that God's word to Cain requires more contemplation. God knew Cain's heart. He knew that unbridled anger leads to murder. And the text also assumes that Cain knew that murder was wrong. Cain's parents, remember Adam and Eve, had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were opened and so Cain's eyes were opened here as well. He knew the difference between good and evil and that's why God told Cain that evil desires to have him 
but his calling was to master or have dominion over it. So it's not really a command, don't do this or do this. It's a progress here of Cain to think about his situation and to learn to master evil. There's maturity here going on in the way God treated Adam and Eve in the garden with one command and how God spoke to Cain. He was to have dominion or to master evil. And in this we find a prefigurement of what happens later in Revelation chapter 21. You don't have to turn there. But you have the same basic principle at the very end of our Bible and very close to another garden where John says in Revelation 21, 6 and 7, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. My son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so this idea of, of God telling Cain to master sin is actually an, an echo all the way back into Revelation where you have the idea that, that John is, is saying that he who overcomes evil will inherit this and serve with, and rule with God. So we have a progress here between God's word to Adam and Eve and God's word to Cain. So what we have in Genesis 4 is the temptation and the fall of Cain. A lot of people don't realize this, but actually you have another temptation, another fall in Genesis 4, right after Genesis chapter 3. But things are a bit different. Rather than a simple command from God, we find God's word encouraging discernment and discipline. Cain is not a naive child like Adam and Eve were. His eyes were opened like his parents. And so what God wants to do to Cain is he wants him to act in maturity and recognize the dangerous and evil attitude of his heart in order to avoid sin. Cain is being told to learn self-control. When his face was downcast, God's word comes to him and God tells him to learn self-control and to master evil or master sin. But does Cain listen to God's word? Verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keepers? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So first, Abel murders his brother. And then you have God showing up in judgment and asking Cain a question, just like God showed up and asked Adam and Eve a question in the garden. And notice that after Abel commits murder... He then lies about where his brother is. And so what you have here is because of his disobedience to God's word, you have sin mastering Cain, where he starts one sin and then that leads to the next sin until eliminated. And then from there, another verse up from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. So we have another pronouncement of judgment and another curse on the ground, which would basically condemn Cain to a wandering futility in the earth where he would have really no rest. Now, the rest of this chapter, we have this response from Cain. Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth 
and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain responds in fear. And the rest of this chapter deals with the line of Cain which developed apart from God's presence. That's the key here that, that Cain is driven from the, from the presence of God in God's people, from the land of God's presence. Just like Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. And we have, from here on out, we have all these different people that are spring from Cain's line and each one of them gets worse. So you have this, this line of Cain which would be associated with the seed of the serpent back from Genesis chapter 3. And we know that they get worse. You get to verse 19. Lamech is the seventh from Adam in Cain's line. And seven is a very important biblical number, the perfect number. So we have Lamech who is the absolute worst in this line. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And so Lamech enters into a polygamous marriage breaking the order that God had set from creation. So you have that as soon as this Cain leaves the presence of God and his family, it progressively gets more and more perverse. It progressively becomes more boastful. You get to uh, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This is boastful and arrogance. This is life apart from the presence of God. So the entire creation pattern here with the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, becomes perverted. I should point out here that the the story of Cain and Abel plays a key role in the New Testament as well. John makes an application from it to his situation in 1 John chapter 3. I think if you think about the situation of the first century with the, with the persecution between the Jews and the Christians, this actually makes a lot of sense. But First John chapter 3, we see this application of the principles of the garden. Verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He's warning about temptation there. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So there you have the the idea of the wicked being the children of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he was born of God. So this idea of two lines is very, very clear in John's thinking. You have the line of the devil and you have the seed of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. Speaking of Genesis. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And that is a very appropriate story for John to reference and and apply in his situation because you had the Jews who claimed to be God's covenant children, and you had the Christians who also claimed to be God's covenant children, and the Jews brought their sacrifice to God as did the Christians through Jesus Christ. 
And through the signs and wonders of the New Testament, God made it clear whose sacrifice he was pleased with. It was the Christian sacrifice. And what you have there in the situation in the first century, the Jews were not happy the fact that, that, Christ, that God in Christ accepted the Christian sacrifice and rejected their sacrifice through the works of the law. And you have the Jews rising up to kill their covenant brothers, the Christians. So it's a very applicable story in the persecution that we see in the first century, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, Genesis 5 starts out with another line following that theme from Genesis chapter 3 where we have two lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 5 picks up another line from Adam, the line of Seth. We read back in verse 25 of chapter 4 that Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. And so we have this line of Seth. And what's interesting about this line, I'm not going to read the entire genealogy, but you have a particular individual who's very special in this line who is the seventh from Adam through Seth. So you have the seventh from Adam through Cain, who is Lamech, who is the epitome of everything that is wicked. And you have the seventh in line from Adam through Seth, who is Enoch. Verse 21 of chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And it's the seventh from Adam, a very symbolic and very perfect number in the Bible. Enoch was a perfect man. And that's actually the way this idea of walking with God is connected to this idea of Enoch living 365 years. Well, there's a symbolic idea behind that number. 365 years matches how many days are in a year. And so Enoch lived a perfect year of years. Think of it that way. It's a, it's a, it's a way of designating symbolically a perfect life. And because he lived perfect life, he walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. And this walking with God imagery is very rare in Genesis. We have Adam who walked with God in the garden. We have Enoch who walked with God. You have Noah who walked with God. You have Abraham who walked with God and you have Isaac who walked with God. Those are the only ones that we see actually that are used that phrase of walking with God. And the idea here is that through the perfect walk with God, Enoch had eternal life because he never died. And in this story of Enoch, this life of Enoch, we see pictured the teaching of Jesus Christ because Jesus also taught, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so the idea of eternal life is, is presented symbolically through the, through the life of Enoch who lived a perfect year of years and was taken and was no more and did not experience death as we hear the writer of Hebrews say. Now before we move on to Genesis 6 and the account of Noah, we're going to see a very interesting garden in the life of Noah. Notice that in the genealogy of chapter 5, there are long lifespans mentioned. You have people living 800, 900, 930 years, 777 years. And in Cain's line, you have none of that. You have the same thing going on later after Noah, after the flood. Noah had three sons. 
And there are three, ge- three genealogies in, in uh, Genesis chapter 10. And only one genealogy gives lifespans. Now, I believe that these lifespans are actually a symbolic representation of who the Messianic line is. The reason I say that is because back in, in this particular ancient part of the world, in Mesopotamia, they had lists of kings, of Sumerian kings who lived for thousands of years, lived and reigned for thousands of years. And so in this culture, they would use long lifespans as a way of, of showing who the kings were. And so we have that listed right here. Cain, Cain's line, we have no lifespans. And with Seth's line, we have these long lifespans all the way through the time of Noah. And I think that there's a covenant statement here just like you see in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 uses long lifespans. I actually believe that the millennium in Revelation chapter 20 where the saints lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years is a lifespan right out of this particular aspect of Genesis. So I don't take these as as literal biological statements of how long they lived. I take them as symbolic of who this messianic line is, the true kingly line through which the Messiah would come. We see the same thing going on after the flood with the line of Shem. So we see a lot of these different symbolic and redemptive aspects of Genesis coming through here with these two genealogies, the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. We see another echo of the garden in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. It's the same pattern that happened to Eve in the garden. She saw with her eyes that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and she took and chose the fruit. So you have here the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful or good in Hebrew, and they chose, married, any of them that they wished. So you have here a corruption of the line. The sons of God would be the the sons of of Seth, the covenant people, were marrying the ungodly line in Cain and they were mixing through intermarriage the godly line and the and the unfaithful line and bringing idolatry into the and the wickedness into the into the godly line of Seth. And God says so we have another fall here in Genesis chapter six verse one, another fall, just like when very same warning that Paul gives about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. We have this intermarriage between believers and unbelievers right here in Genesis 6. And that, of course, brings the flood. But we find in Genesis 6, 9 that there is one who is righteous, Noah. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So there we have one who is faithful in the light of all of those around him who are falling into sin, who are mixing the godly line with the unbelieving line and bringing in idolatry and wickedness and violence into the, into the covenant line, you have Noah who is righteous. Noah, of course, is like Jesus Christ. Noah is a righteous man in a, in a crooked and perverted generation. Noah preached about the end of a covenant world, just like Jesus Christ was a righteous preacher in a wicked and corrupt generation And Jesus Christ preached of a coming end of his covenant world. And what's interesting about Noah is that Noah was to be a redeemer. 
If you go back to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29, you see something said about his name. Genesis 5, 28 and 29 says that when Lamech, this is the, the Lamech from Seth's line, had lived 182 years, he had a son, he named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so Noah was to be the one who would be lifting the curse from the ground. You won't see that in the Creation Museum back in Kentucky. They talk a lot about the curse. Well, actually you have this idea of the curse being placed on the ground with the fall of Adam and Eve and then Noah has come to lift the curse and renew the ground. And so we have this story of the flood, God's judgment on an, an unbelieving and wicked world and God responded to Noah's faith by establishing a new covenant with him and his offspring after the flood. Notice the echo from earlier in Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter 9, we'll see an echo all the way back from the garden. Actually, go back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. We see Noah's response to God's salvation through the flood. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so the world is being put back together here, being renewed through Noah and God's judgment on that wicked world. Noah restores balance to God's world. And then verse 1 of chapter 9, we see a repeat of the covenant with Adam and Eve. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. But we have another development here in verse 2. As I've gone through this series, I've tried to emphasize the theme of maturity, where Adam and Eve were, were placed in the garden so they would have to learn maturity and learn obedience. We now have Noah, who was faithful through the flood, who is now given more dominion and more authority than was given before. Verse 2, The fear and the dread of you will be fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And so Noah, righteous Noah, is now maturing as God's son. There's this maturation going on where Noah is now given more authority over over the creation. And we also notice that Noah is given authority over civil society. Verse 4, But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. As a response to the violence that was going on in the covenant world before the flood, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now what happened when Cain murdered Abel? Who pronounced judgment? God did. Directly. And then you have now Noah, who's this authority is being delegated from God to, to Noah for civil society that by man now, for murderers, their blood will be shed. And so you have the covenant people of God growing up in Noah, giving more and more responsibility just like children as they grow up. 
we give them more and more responsibility, we trust them more with more things, and they grow up into mature adults. That's really what's going on with Noah. Noah is demonstrating covenant discipline and maturity. He found himself in a new covenant world where responsibility was given to him and his children that had not been given to generations before him. In fact, Noah found himself in another garden. Notice in verse 18 of chapter 9, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These were the three sons of Noah. From them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. So we find another garden here. But with a big difference because back in the original garden, who planted the trees? God planted the trees. And now Noah is planting a vineyard. And notice that there's no command from God in this particular garden because God assumed that Noah knew right and wrong. God assumed that he was mature enough to handle the fruit of the vine. And the fruit of the vine is even different from the trees of the garden because you have fruit trees in the garden which you eat raw. But here you have the fruit of the vine which takes not just growing them, not just picking them, but you have to begin fermentation, you have to begin storage. And so everything about Noah is about maturation. He's becoming grown up, so to speak, as a son of God. But like his father Adam, he still failed in his garden. Verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. You see the echo back from the garden? When Adam and Eve ate, the, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realized that they were naked. When Noah drank himself to drunkenness, he became naked in his tent and opened the door of his household to sin because then we have the situation with Ham. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. There's been a lot of speculation about exactly what this sin of Ham is when he found his father in a drunken stupor in his tent. At the very least, it was not honoring his father and mother. The way he treated the situation, he told his brothers and made light of it, therefore defiling his father in the eyes of his brothers and, his, and, his, and the others around so when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. So notice the judgment is now given over to Noah. Because in the Garden of Eden, God came back and pronounced judgment on the woman, the serpent, and Adam. Now you have Noah pronouncing judgment in the situation. And of course, this situation broke his family up and his fall in his garden sets the tone for the rest of Genesis actually. We get to Genesis going from, from Noah to the others involved in Genesis, the patriarchs. And what we're going to see is that the different patriarchs each have their own garden, each with their own temptations, and each have their own triumphs over evil and sin and each have their own failings with sin until we get to one particular individual at the very end of Genesis. At the very end of Genesis we find one and we actually have a countdown. It's interesting with the numbers with these lifespans. I'll get to this next sermon. We actually have a countdown 
to a very important individual at the end of Genesis who is faced with a temptation and succeeds. And he will be the one to really save the entire covenant world and bring food to the entire world through his obedience, through his faithfulness in his own garden. So what I want to emphasize through this here is that the book of Genesis is really dealing with God's covenant relationship with his people. And what we see in Genesis is God showing grace to his people over and over and over again, bringing them to maturity, giving them more experience. Even the idea of putting the serpent in the garden in the first place was to accomplish God's will. Because Adam and Eve were innocent, but they were naive. They were inexperienced. And the serpent would do God's will in bringing Adam and Eve and their children, the, the, the true covenant faithful ones of God, the children of God, to maturity in Christ. And we see this very same thing with our children too. Because our children are a lot like that and we as parents act like God. If we're good parents, we act like God. We put our children in a situation where they are tested and where they are, are challenged to grow and mature because there's nothing that makes me more happy than to see my children being able to handle things on their own to learn how to master evil and sin. And that's really the, 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 the big theme here in the garden. How to master and have dominion over sin in their own lives. And that's, what, that's the story of, of what's going on in Genesis. God the Father is raising his children. And we see that in the various gardens, garden situations that we find through Genesis. And from here we'll go look, go look at Abraham in another garden situation with Lot. But what I hope to impress on you is that God's grace begins from the very beginning. The good Father... And the key to succeeding into temptation is to have faith in God's Word and to believe in things that you cannot see yet, which is the only way to please God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for what You've done for us in Jesus Christ, Your Son. We thank You for our children and for our friends. We thank You for the challenges that You put in our lives that are used of You to, to mold us and strengthen us and to build our faith. We pray that you lead us and guide us in the coming week. May we be a beacon of light in the world around us. May you show us what kingdom work we have for our hands. And may we live by faith, daily waiting upon the bread that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.